Half Dome is a mountain that needs almost no introduction. It's in Yosemite Valley, and it looks like a perfect granite dome that was somehow cut in half. So it has this one sheer vertical wall, and the rest of it is kind of this rounded, steep gray rock. In 1870, the California Geological Society said that the mountain was perfectly inaccessible, aka impossible to climb. And of course, similar to putting a sign that says cupcakes made here on a random door at a fat camp, climbers felt inexplicably drawn to this apparently impossible mountain. Words are powerful, especially when put in front of the right audience. By 1875, only five years after being called impossible, Half Dome saw its first ascent. By 2023, over 50,000 people climb the mountain every year. And today, we're going to talk about another mountain that was deemed unclimbable. In fact, actually, it's not just one mountain. It's an entire mountain range. And the similarities between this range and Yosemite are pretty uncanny. They both have soaring granite walls as far as the eye can see that are loaded with perfect cracks leading up from a majestic boulder-filled meadow. Except where Yosemite is a four-hour drive on paved roads from San Francisco, this place, located in the Canadian north, has no roads going to it. In fact, there are no paved roads within hundreds of kilometers of it. Access is a logistical nightmare. So why have the most famous climbers in the world, many of them regular Yosemite climbers, been going on massive adventures to get there for the last 70 years? Maybe it's the name. Welcome to A Brief History of Climb. I'm James Howell, and on today's episode, I'm looking into the history of a group of sheer granite walls in the Great Canadian North. And I'm going to tell the history through five first ascents that tell the story of the area known as the Cirque of the Unclimbables. So, where is this place? The Cirque of the Unclimbables is located in Canada's Northwest Territories, which is a vast area bordering both British Columbia and Alberta to the south and the Yukon Territories to the west. If you already think somewhere like Vancouver is far north, well, the Cirque of the Unclimbables is located more than 2,000 kilometers north of there, or around a 3-hour flight or 25-hour drive. The Cirque itself is located in Nahani National Park, which is a protected wilderness area that is named after a glacial river that weaves throughout the mountains of southern Northwest Territories. The Nahani are part of the Dene First Nations, and they and their ancestors have lived in and around this area for up to 10,000 years. The mountains in this area are granite, and they're not unlike what you would find in Yosemite or Squamish. They're filled with perfect splitter cracks and lots of unique features. Here's Tommy Caldwell describing the climbing in the Cirque from an expedition in 2010. The head wall climbing was some of the best climbing I've ever seen in my life. Um, beautiful cracks that stretched on for nearly a thousand feet and um, all these perfect knobs. It was made for climbing. It was absolutely perfect for rock climbing. 
In case you didn't know, a cirque is a kind of deep, steep-walled valley carved out of mountains, usually with a meadow at the bottom. They are beautiful features, and the Cirque of the Unclimbables, which is actually many cirques kind of branching off of each other, is on a scale that just defies imagination. There are over 20 individual mountains that make up the Cirque, and each of them has its own Yosemite-sized granite walls that are falling beneath them. The vertical and overhanging glacially carved walls reach to a lush greenery and flowers at the bottom known as Fairy Meadow. Most climbers these days, they access the Cirque by float plane. But to give you a sense of the remoteness of this area, let me share with you what is potentially the longest approach story that you've ever heard. In 1995, famous German climber Kurt Albert, along with Stefan Gloax and two other partners, decided to go on a bold experiment to approach these mountains without the use of motorized support. From an area known as Flat Lakes, they began paddling canoes down the fourth-class rapids of the Nahani River for 140 kilometers, or 90 miles, before getting to a place known as Britnell Creek. From there, they hiked uphill for 22 kilometers on a rugged, grizzly bear-infested trail heading into the Cirque. Once they got to Fairy Meadow, they set up camp and began scouting long new routes. Over the following week, they established a 16-pitch 512D route on Mount Harrison Smith. They named it Fitzcarraldo, after the German film about a boat on the side of a mountain. I'm a sucker for great names, and I have to say, if you are too, get excited, because the Cirque is absolutely full of them. But after their climb, their adventure wasn't even halfway done. They hiked back down to their canoes and put back into the river, paddling for another 400 kilometers back to civilization. This approach was a nod to those Dene people who had navigated the lands by canoe for thousands of years. In the 1870s, white explorers began coming to the area searching for gold. But it wouldn't be until the 1950s that climbers got anywhere close to the Cirque. From the nearby Logan Range, there were some climbers that reported that in the distance, they could see, quote, unlimited possibilities of virgin mountains rivaling the Alps and Cascades in grandeur and difficulty. Once again here, we have extremely powerful words that are bound to make any climber's ears perk up. It's from this point on that hardcore climbers began to be drawn to this particular cirque. That brings us to our next first ascensionist who brought fame to the cirque. His name was Arnold Wexler. Does that name sound familiar? Maybe not, but it really should. He might be the most influential climber that you've never heard of, and I actually suggest that you Google him to find out why. Once again, that name is Arnold Wexler. In 1955, he heard those powerful words about this unknown range of steep mountains in the Northwest Territories, and he got an expedition together to explore it. After doing a reconnaissance flight to check out the area, Wexler was drooling at the idea of climbing in the Cirque. He got a team together and he set out for a long stay in Fairy Meadow to explore. But when they got there 
and sat under the walls, reality set in. These walls were vertical or overhanging from the base to the summit. They had never seen walls like this before. Wexler declared that most of the peaks were unclimbable, thus giving the Cirque its lyrical and enticing name. I'd like to think that he was aware that this name was basically a siren call for climbers everywhere, but who knows? Either way, the name stuck, and the Cirque of the Unclimbables was born. Interestingly, Wexler and his team did manage to climb the highest mountain in the Cirque, Mount Sir James McBrien, but they did this by following easier third and fourth class terrain on the ridges, and they completely avoided the unclimbable faces and cracks. When he returned to America, the discovery of Wexler's unclimbable mountains made its rounds in the climbing world. Those powerful words drew people to the challenge. And soon after, the greatest climbers of the day would make the long and rugged journey to northern Canada. Let's look at our next historical first ascent. In 1963, Royal Robbins was at the top of his game. He was a master of Yosemite big walls, every year putting up new routes and pushing the envelope constantly. Earlier in the year, he pulled off the first ascent of the face of that other unclimbable mountain that we talked about, Half Dome, using new big wall tactics he developed. Afterwards, hearing that the Cirque offered similar challenging climbs in an unbelievable setting, he set off for Canada with his friends Jim McCarthy and Leighton Corr, two other legends of the time. Over a week, they made the long drive up the Alaska Highway to Nahani Territory, and they caught a float plane to the Cirque. They were blown away by what they saw. They settled on a king line going up the face of Mount Proboscis, another just phenomenal name, by the way. This mountain was described as, quote, rising like a dorsal fin of some great prehistoric beast. Proboscis hosts a proud 2,000-foot wall with cracks and roofs and these small black feldspar protrusions and crystals sticking out of it that litter the whole face. It was described as a mountain that looks like it was sheared in half. They wanted to get on the wall right away, but they were marred by the classically unpredictable weather in the Cirque, so they had to hang out in a cave waiting for a weather window. When the window came, they began making their way up the impossible face. Things were progressing well, up until the third day. That morning, it was Leighton's lead, and Jim was belaying him under a small roof. Leighton was six foot five and around 200 pounds. He also had about 50 iron pitons clipped to his gear sling. What I'm trying to say is, at that time, he was extremely heavy. Luckily, for some reason, that morning, they both chose to wear helmets, which was something that was not common at all for the time, but it would go on to save their lives. Leighton led around a corner and further up the wall as Jim paid out rope to him. He placed one piton and then another and a few more. And then out of nowhere, Leighton fell. His fall ripped out some of his pitons, and the force of the fall sent Jim McCarthy flying upwards into the small roof above him. He smashed his head into the rock. A quick reminder here that this was a world before Grigri's. It was actually even before ATC's. 
If he hadn't have been wearing a helmet and was knocked unconscious, he'd have likely lost control of the belay and sent them both on a long fall to the ground. But luckily, he only ended up with a bump on his head. Leighton continued the lead, and the following day, the three of them reached the summit. When their trip report showed up in the American Alpine Journal later that year, the word got out. The Cirque of the Unclimbables were, in fact, totally climbable, and they offered some of the best climbing in the world. Mount Proboscis was the first of the unclimbable faces to be done in the Cirque, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. Jim McCarthy is quoted as saying that the Cirque of the Unclimbables is heaven on earth, so it's no surprise that later on in the decade, in 1968, McCarthy would recruit another valley legend, Tom Frost, to return to the Cirque to do the first route on the face of another fantastically named mountain, Lotus Flower Tower. Over three days, the team made the first ascent of this amazing face. This climb, much more so than that of the 1963 Proboscis Ascent, would draw hundreds of climbers to the Cirque over the next five decades. Their route is graded 5.9 A1, and today it remains one of the most sought-after alpine objectives in North America. Here's Tommy Caldwell talking about the climb in 2010. I want to go to the Lotus Flower Tower because it is one of the best climbs in the world. My dad had always dreamed about going there and talked about it, and um, it just seemed like an opportunity I couldn't pass up. There are a few reasons for the popularity of this climb. One is that the name is simply badass, and people love climbing aesthetically pleasing towers and prows. The Lotus Flower Tower sticks up out of Fairy Meadow in a somewhat similar way to the nose of El Capitan in Yosemite. It just looks like an incredibly badass line. Another is that this climb was included in one of the greatest guidebooks of all time, 50 Classic Climbs of North America. This guidebook came out in 1979, and it truly is a dream tick list. These really are some of the greatest climbs that you can find on the North American continent. And lastly, the Lotus Flower Tower became popular because of what happened on it in 1977, a time that many consider to be the start of the modern era of the Cirque. It was, this, it was that year in 1977 when three American climbers made the first free ascent of Lotus Flower Tower. The route went at 510 plus and it created a big wall free climb in an incredible location that was accessible for the masses. And I should maybe quantify that. When I say accessible, I mean that at 510 plus, which is a somewhat moderate grade, a lot of people are able to do it. I don't mean that it's accessible in the sense that it's easy to get to, because obviously it is an absolute mission. If there's anyone out there listening and wondering if you could go climbing in the Cirque, this route is for you. It's 19 pitches of pure bliss and it's calling your name right now. The first free climb in the Cirque led to the climbing world at large going gangbusters on the area. By the end of the 80s, most of the plumb lines in the Cirque had been picked, and many of them had been free climbed. Climbers needed to start looking outside the obvious lines to find the next new adventure. 
And that brings us to my personal favorite first ascent story in the Cirque. In the 1970s, the world-famous photographer and climber Galen Rowell went to the Cirque a couple of times, but due to weather, never managed to climb anything. He did, however, take some amazing photos of the walls, including the face of Mount Proboscis in all its glory. Then in 1991, Todd Skinner, who was undoubtedly one of the strongest climbers in America at the time, called him up to ask what he knew about Mount Proboscis. Todd and his partner, Paul Piana, were massive names in the climbing world, especially after their 1988 first free ascent of the Salathe Wall on El Capitan. They heard that Proboscis might just be the next step in extreme big wall free climbing that they were looking for. So to entice them, Galen sent them a massive print of a photo that he took of the face, showcasing a perfect unclimbed crack that went from the bottom of Proboscis all the way to the summit. The climbing alone seemed too good to be true, but Todd had another reason for wanting to go. Todd was one of the first climbers in the world to understand the importance of selling yourself and going big with adventures that could then be sold to sponsors and companies in order to fund his climbing. He loved attention, and the idea of going to this amazing place and putting up a hard new route while being photographed by Galen was too good to be passed up. So Todd and Paul were in. In July 1992, they packed into Galen's Chevy Suburban and drove for five days from California to the Northwest Territories. After catching a float plane to Ferry Meadows, they then set up camp below Proboscis, and the exact view that Galen had sent them in the photo emerged in front of their eyes. But then, Todd and Paul began walking to the far left side of the face, looking at a wild vertical edge over on that side. Galen was puzzled. It looked ugly and unclimbable, with a soggy crack at the bottom. Todd yelled out, The rock looks perfect! But Galen thought that they were going to climb the perfect crack in the center of the face. But Todd and Paul had no plans to climb that crack. In the previous months, while staring at the photo Galen had sent them, they were looking at the knife edge arete on the left side of the face. But there are no cracks, said Galen puzzled. The thing is, Galen was looking at the face as a climber from the 1960s, when cracks were the things that people climbed. Todd was looking at it as a modern climber. He wanted hard, overhanging faces and extreme features. Todd looked at Galen and said, this is just what we've been looking for. It's got root of the 90s stamped all over it. No one's ever free-climbed a natural feature this big and steep that wasn't a crack. But with that edge to hold on to, and these little crystals to stand on, it's worth trying. It's the wildest line that I've ever seen in my life, either in photos or on real rock. I can tell you one thing, I won't be able to live with myself until we find out if it goes. Begrudgingly, Galen agreed to try it. Over the next couple of weeks, Todd and Paul went full-on sport climbing style on the wall. They were rehearsing moves and ticking crystals and red-pointing pitches. But after all that time, they still weren't sure if it would go. 
it was clear that there was a lot of 513 on the route, which at the time was still cutting edge, especially for big wall free climbing. After the fourth pitch, they had to get past a steep roof with only tiny faceholds to climb. Then the crux pitch came, a pure test piece of holding the arete while stepping on tiny crystals. But it wasn't simply the climbing that made it hard. The conditions also had to be perfect. It needed to be cold enough to get friction on the tiny edges and crystals. But don't forget that they were close to the Arctic Circle, and temperatures could easily dip to a point where climbing on those tiny edges became too painful, especially when tackling 20 pitches over multiple days. After Todd completed the crux pitch, he said, quote, it was like a spiritual lessening of gravity when something kicks in from the ozone. You feel like you're faking it for a few moves, but somehow you don't fall. I feel like many climbers can relate to that feeling. Because Galen was there, there are some phenomenal photos of this ascent. The climb truly is in such an incredible and unlikely position. I mean, imagine climbing an arete for a thousand feet. It's just a wild place to be. After the thousand foot arete, they made their way onto the headwall and followed perfect splitter cracks to the summit, dodging rain and bad weather over three days. By the end of the climb, the route that they had created was totally outrageous in comparison to all the other routes in the Cirque because it followed blank faces, overhangs, cracks, and of course, the epic thousand-foot arete. In total, the route is 22 pitches long, and it's graded 513B, in quite possibly the most beautiful and majestic setting in the entire world. Before they finished the route, Paul had already suggested a name for this wild climb, the Great Canadian Knife. A perfect name, in my humble opinion. In the years that followed, leading into the new millennium and all the way to today, many strong teams have gone to the Cirque of the Unclimbables and continued to put up new routes. People including Kurt Smith, Johnny Kopp, Timmy O'Neill, Tommy Caldwell, Beth Rodden, Inez Papert, and Madeline Sorkin, along with many more of the climbing world's most famous and talented. Surprisingly, in recent years, some adventurous boulderers have gone purely to sample the amazing blocks that are scattered throughout Fairy Meadow. There are established boulder problems as hard as V10, with many more to be found for those who are keen to do so. Here's Tommy talking about the bouldering. Since it was raining and snowing for the first week when we were there, we weren't able to climb the big walls that we came for. But around the base camp were all these beautiful, amazing boulders. So we entertained ourselves by going bouldering. And if it wasn't in the middle of nowhere, I think that the Cirque could also be a good bouldering destination. But regardless of what you go there to do, or what style of climbing you like, the Cirque of the Unclimbables is absolutely not climbed out. There are even some big faces that have no recorded ascents, waiting to be climbed by a creative team wanting an adventure. So, if you have an interest in adventure climbing in pristine wilderness, get out there and make your own history in the Cirque of the Unclimbables. Just remember, it's pristine wilderness, so make sure that you leave no trace. And that's it for today's episode of A Brief History of Climb. 
I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you join me next time. I know that there's plenty of people who have reached out and asked that I put out more of these episodes, and I assure you that I'm working on it. I'm hoping to have another one out before the end of March 2024. Once again, my name is James Howell. Thank you for listening to A Brief History of Climb, and I'll see you next time.